Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those who want to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. On this episode, I'm joined by Rod Bennett, sought-after speaker, writer, author of books like The Four Witnesses, The Church in Her Own Words, and for our sake in this episode, The Apostasy That Wasn't a book which traces out the idea of an apostasy taking place in the church. And that's our topic for this episode. Was there an apostasy in the church that Jesus founded? Did it somehow lose its way, lose its authority? We tackle that topic with Rod. And this is a fantastic discussion. You know, I've been doing this podcast for only a short time so far, and I've had some great interviews, and this one was truly fun. I mean, I had fun talking to Rod. He's so plain-spoken and straightforward and hilarious. It's a really great interview, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome. My guest today is Rod Bennett, speaker and author of a number of books, including Four Witnesses, The Early Church in Her Own Words, and The Apostasy That Wasn't, The Extraordinary Story of the Unbreakable Early Church. Hi, Rod. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Keith. It's good to be here. I'm. It's an absolute pleasure, I must say, to have you on the show. I'm very excited. And I want to hear about your faith journey, because I've heard your story, and it's a truly fantastic one, and I think the listeners would really enjoy hearing at least a bit about that. But I wanted to, from the outset, kind of define the idea of apostasy so that those listening kind of know what we're talking about um, before we dig in. So let me try this on and see how, how I do. Sure. Because... As I was making my way into the Catholic Church as a non-denominational evangelical, I ran into this idea of an apostasy. And for me, it was the tension between Scripture and tradition. And I talk about this in actually the first episode of my podcast, because what happened was it was a Protestant pastor at a church where I was working who took me into his office one day and said to me, what's more important, Scripture or tradition? Now, I had no idea that he was on his own kind of journey into the ancient <laughs> faiths. Right. But what happened was that set me on a long journey to try and find the answer to that question. And I talked to friends and other pastors and was reading these Protestant sources. And I'd get to the part of church history where I kind of had to concede that the Catholic Church put together and affirmed the canon of the Bible. Uh, that tradition, you know, put together the scriptures. I, I couldn't get around that fact of history. So you, so you were willing to concede that the Catholic Church was that old, at least, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, so, it, yeah. Some people won't won't grant that. <laughs> well, I, I I I got to a point where I had to grant that. I couldn't. I recognized that that had to be the church that put together the Bible. But now, you know, it it, it had the authority to do that. It handed it down through an apostolic an apostolic tradition. Um, through a church that had a succession of bishops and whatnot, and it put together this infallible Bible. So I, I had to concede that. But then we say, okay, so maybe the church had that authority. And here's where I landed. It, 
it had to have had that authority, but then it had to have lost that authority somewhere down the line. It it must have begun to add things to the simple Christian faith. It must have well, began you, to complicate yeah. things, right? And then this was what I said was, was the apostasy. That's right. You've already discovered the apostasy at that point. <laughs> so that's where I landed. And yeah. it it's took... a curious, a very curious fact, but a very important one that the Catholic Church is the only Christian church, as far as I can tell, that doesn't believe some form of apostasy theory. The Catholic Church says no, no apostasy. Obviously, there have been times of uh, where faith has waxed hotter and uh, times when things have gotten worse, and we've always had trouble, and we've, we've always, you know, that we've, the, the church has uh, struggled along through the entire period. But the true faith was never lost. The succession of bishops was never lost. The Holy Spirit never left and came back for a while. Everything's continuing business as usual under the same management. We're the only church that teaches that. And that's a very, very striking fact. It's interesting that, and I obviously agree with you, this is the cordial Catholic podcast, and I got got to that point. So, so So tell me, and maybe you can illustrate this through your own story. How do we get to a point where the Catholic Church is the only Christian manifestation, manifestation of, of the Christian Church, the only church that is willing to say there wasn't an apostasy, and all the others have to concede some kind of apostasy? How did we get to that point? Well, it seems to have started very early. I mean, if you think about it, if you don't like what the Catholic uh, authorities are doing, if you're on the out with the church in some significant way, and you feel like you just want to get out and start fresh somewhere, a very natural human instinct, you know, many people have that feeling, you know, maybe I just need to quit my job and start somewhere else, move move to a different state, et cetera. That's pretty natural response to, uh, to political chicanery and all sorts of other things that plague us here in this veil of tears. Uh, but if you're going to do that, you have to give yourself permission to do it, and it usually happens in terms of an apostasy, that the church has gone off the rails, as the phrase goes. But it's amazing the degree, how early it started. How, how the, apparently the earliest apostasy theorists were the Judaizers, who actually start doing it while the apostles are still alive. In other words... The, not only did the church go off the rails early, it went off while the apostles were still living. <laughs> now, that's, now that is an early apostasy theory. But the Judaizers essentially said the, the apostles, uh, well, some of them used the version uh, that Peter and Paul had had a falling out and that, uh, uh, that, the, uh, that shows that, uh, they, that they're divided amongst themselves. So there you go. It's off to the races, you know. But the Judaizers said that this teaching of freedom from the law was uh, uh, was a great apostasy, a falling away from the truth as it had always been uh, always been believed. And then, of course, not long after that, you've got the Marcionites who come along uh, and teach sort of the mirror image of of the Judaistic heresy, which is that uh, uh, the the apostles kept too much of the Old Testament. It was a mistake to keep the Old Testament. So equal and opposite errors, but they both blamed a division amongst the apostles, or that terrible man Paul came in, or uh, uh, and then of course this is not too different than the the modernist version that you still hear today that uh, the early message was 
betrayed by Paul or whatever. But uh, uh, but yeah, these are con- these conspiracy theories, these great apostasy theories, come in right right from the beginning. There's something inherent about the nature of a visible church that uh, that prompts uh, conspiracy theories about uh, about apostasy. And right at the very beginning, that's very fascinating. Right. Well, mo- most of us as evangelicals didn't want to go that far back, and most people, I think, see the absurdity of a uh, uh, of uh, Jesus's own personal disciples going astray just a few years after they had been under his training and tutelage. If the if the truth is that easy to fumble away, then uh, uh, <laughs> it was maybe not a good plan on our Lord's part to impart his teaching demand. <laughs> if, if, if it's that fragile, if within just a few years, uh, the, the very men that you picked and hand trained for three years to do this job, even going so far as to say, whoever hears you, hears me. Um, and whoever doesn't hear me refuses to hear you refuses to hear me. That's uh, uh that's a pretty big stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah. If it, if it, if it's that fragile, then uh, the whole, Christian experiment seems uh, seems like a fool's errand. Right, and I suppose the interesting point to that is if you hypothesize any apostasy, why is one like that any more ridiculous than a more modern apostasy, right? Sure, well, I mean, like I say, since just about everybody brings one in at some point, you know, the, the uh, you know, a, a few centuries later, not even addressing early, other early heresies uh, that have gone extinct, but but things like the uh, uh, the division between the Eastern and the Western churches is a is a is a conspiracy theory, apostasy theory, that uh, you know the popes became heretic and uh, we had to start over. We had to divide from them, you know, or the uh, uh, you know then a few years later. I mean, it just happens over and over again. And everybody who is not a Catholic Christian, strange as it sounds has got some sort of conspiracy theory about what happened to make their denomination necessary. So, all right, so why don't you take us into how you discovered that that fact and a little bit about your story and your journey into the, the Catholic faith and how an apostasy, I think, was at the center of that, maybe. Or... Very, very, very central, yeah, the, the, uh, the growing sense of absurdity about this idea. Uh, the... Uh, the fact that everybody had a different uh, apostasy, they all disagreed about when it started and over what, but they also disagreed about who the prophet was that put everything right again, whether it was Martin Luther or John Calvin or, you know, later on, you you pick, Joseph Smith, uh, whatever. It, Islam is another one. Islam is a conspiracy theory about uh, a, a great apostasy. Uh, they essentially believe that the Christians uh, received a true message from from the prophet Jesus, and uh, uh, and they fumbled it away and distorted it and wrote a false Bible to a false translation of the Bible to uh, uh, to put it over. So that's one of the great uh, great apostasy churches. It's odd to call Islam a church, but in that sense, it is. It's a uh, uh, it's an attempt to simplify Christianity with the same idea that most evangelicals carry around, although to a lesser degree, obviously. The evangelicals carry around the idea that uh, that the ship that Christ launched while he was with us on earth uh, got encrusted with barnacles, uh, and uh, that the job of, our job today is to scrape the barnacles off. Well, that's what, that's what Islam was all about, simplifying 
the original message by uh, scraping off all the accretions. That's so. That's a very interesting perspective on that, for sure. Right? It's just a different kind of uh, uh, apostasy. Yeah, it's, it's. I'm certainly not the first person that ever uh, noticed that Islam really ought to be thought of as a Christian heresy because it uh, uh, it 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 did get started in that way. It got started. Uh, uh, you know, Islam. Muhammad was a. Uh, in, at any rate, uh, Muhammad grew up hearing uh, almost no Orthodox Christianity. He grew up surrounded by uh, a defective form of Christianity. And uh, and as a result, he developed an apostasy theory. So uh, uh, that's uh, off to the races once again. Right, right. Why don't you take us to, I think, a story that takes place in the mountains at, I think, what sounds like some kind of museum to uh, <laughs> oh, well. to a... a, a to, to the rediscovery of the original Christian church, something like that? Yeah, yeah the, the introduction to apostasy that wasn't my book about the 4th uh, century and Athanasius and the Arians and all the rest of it. Uh, that book uh, was uh, has tells the story in the introduction of uh, when I was an evangelical, I made a visit to a little place called Fields of the Wood, which is a tourist attraction not far from where I live now. And it was built by a group called the Church of God of Prophecy of Cleveland, Tennessee. And they it was built not just as a, I mean, it does have a world's largest Ten Commandments made out of concrete, and uh, it's got the, uh, uh, you know, a replica of the, of the empty tomb and all sorts of other things. But when, that's what I expected was just a kind of typical Bible park type thing. And uh, in reality, what we got was uh, I got there and when I first paid it a visit in the 80s, uh, found out that it was a shrine, that it was actually a Catholic-style shrine built to commemorate the place where, in, in 1906, the founder of their group, a man named A.J. Tomlinson, rediscovered the true church after an absence of 1,500 years. Basically, it was the extreme form of Protestant apostasy theory, the idea that the Catholic church had got, gotten in charge and corrupted the faith, and the Holy Spirit was forced to flee and uh for for 1500 years the true faith was lost and uh, uh had been absent and it took this uh remarkable experience of aj tomlinson on the mountaintop here in north carolina to uh to uh bring the true faith back to the earth which was a pretty startling thing to hear when uh when i was a uh theologically minded evangelical uh, asking questions <laughs> so, it was it was a dramatic way of hearing somebody say very plainly something that most evangelicals only have in the back of their minds this idea that the that the it's why evangelicals don't teach you church history during that period we 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 never learned anything before luther many of us hardly learn anything about luther but we certainly don't learn anything about the 1,500 1, years between uh, Luther and the uh, day of Pentecost. And after the after the uh, New Testament closes, it becomes pretty much a uh, a desert. Or it, you know, it did for me. I guess we were allowed to think a little bit about uh, Augustine and his uh, City of God, and there were one or two mentions of uh, people who might not have been too terrible, like uh, Ambrose or. Every now and then, somebody would say something nice about St. Francis. <laughs> but there was, there was always the implication that uh, these people were somehow on the outs with the authorities, though. And so uh, it was a little bit distressing 
to actually go back and read uh, these people and find them recommending submission to the Pope of Rome in the in the strongest terms. <laughs> Francis, <laughs> Francis, Augustine, Ambrose, whoever you want to pick. So, oh, I yeah, do. They, they, I do want to circle back to that idea because that the idea of the, of how we as and I was in the same camp as you how we as evangelicals read the church fathers it's a very fascinating idea to me. I want to circle back to that. So let's put a pin in that because I want to know what your response was. What you see this this uh you know quote unquote shrine to this rediscovery of the true church and and the ending of this apostasy. Uh what was your response to that as a as a Protestant? Well, it rubbed my nose in something that had been sort of in the halfway in the back of my mind for some time. Uh, once as a missionary, I did mi- some missionary work when I was a, uh, a young man. And uh, uh, once on the mission field, uh, I encountered two other Christian missionaries who, uh, during the course of sort of a casual, pleasant conversation, uh, expressed the fact that they felt like that there had been a great apostasy uh, until the time of the great Azusa Street Revival of 19, also 1906, I believe, same year as A.J. Tomlinson. This is the beginning of the modern uh, charisma, Pentecostal movement, or now charismatic mostly in most places. So, uh, you know, that represented the to them the fact that the church had been, uh, if not completely dead, at least uh, uh, the Holy Spirit had been away for a while. So, and, and I remember at the time thinking, that sounds cultic. That sounds like a, uh, this is what Mormons believe. I mean, keep in mind, Mormons have this idea too. Mormonism is built on the idea that uh, Joseph Smith was frustrated by the uh, multiplicity of uh, frontier uh, Christian sects that he encountered and uh, uh, that he went up on a hill and prayed and uh, and asked God which church to join, and he was told, not to join any of them, but to, uh, you know, help God refound the original church, uh, which is very, very much like Muhammad says he was told, uh, you know, don't join any of these churches. Uh, let's make a new one. So uh, which is really the rebirth or the restoration of the old, you know. So, yeah, it was uh, an alarming thing uh, ever since that talk with the Pentecostals. I thought, my goodness. We 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 haven't been very careful about the sort of people we let into our uh, <laughs> uh, into our mission work, but actually I found out that all of us, to some degree, whether we're conscious of it or not, have some version of a great apostasy conspiracy conspiracy theory. But it's when you become aware that many people have a different theory than you do, <laughs> and you don't agree with each other, but you've all agreed to disagree. So long as the Catholic Church is the bad guy, we can all sort of agree on that. But who who it was that brought uh, uh, things back out of the darkness? We could all sort of agree to disagree on, you know. Yeah. And, so we're so we're all we're all hypothesizing some kind of an apostasy. It's just uh, we we don't agree on when it happened or who brought it back or or the well, de- it's, the it's a logical it's a logical necessity. I mean, we all know that the Catholic Church was large and in charge for a thousand years, and if you feel like the Catholic Church is defective and teaches a false gospel, then you have to account for this in some way. And there you go. You've got yourself a great apostasy theory. Right. So your nose was rubbed in it. it you'd been encountered those these Pentecostal, these charismatic uh, missionaries or people in your mission work. And here you are, you see this, this shrine to the true church being reestablished on earth. What, what are the next steps you take to figure out what's, what's going on here? 
Well, there were a lot of things going on at, at, at the same time. Uh, I, I won't try to give a 10-year-long conversion experience because that's how long it did take. It was 10 years in my case. I uh, did not uh, jump easily. And uh, uh, one of the uh, – but I will say that uh, I was – I read C.S. Lewis. He was, you were allowed to read C.S. Lewis as a, uh, an evangelical. And, uh, he, even though he was a little, a little on the high side when it came to, uh, Anglican theology, uh, you know, I was always a little alar- alarmed to hear him talk about the blessed, use terms like the blessed virgin and the uh, blessed sacrament and things of that type. But, uh, you know, people I trusted in evangelicalism had given me permission to read C.S. Lewis. So I did. And I was I was struck very uh, forcefully at one point by uh, Lewis's uh, use of a phrase that I had not heard. He says that uh, it's mainly Christians who feel the divisions within Christianity very strongly. Many people on the outside see the commonality more strongly than we do. And he says that uh, the old uh, uh, the old vision of uh, of the church marching through history, uh, quoting the, I think, quoting the Psalms, terrible as an army with banners, I think is the phrase he uses. The idea that the church has marched uh, in an impressive way throughout her history uh, was really, I love that idea. I love the idea that, that it was this tremendous, this tremendous uh, witness at the center of history. But I also was vaguely aware of the fact that it was completely incompatible with my idea of church history, where things went off the rails early on and were fixed again a thousand years later, 1,500 years or whatever. And uh, uh, it, it sort, sort of became necessary to reconcile the two, you know. <laughs> were, we, were we a magnificent spectacle marching like an army, or were, were we hidden in the weeds and and some obscure mountaineer in a hollow in North Carolina uh, had to find the the uh, the true church, uh, you know, like a pearl of great price hidden under the dirt somewhere. Yeah, which that's is a pretty. That, that's yeah, that's a pretty uh, disparate uh, couple of examples, a couple of options, right? <laughs> right. Now Lewis could say this because, uh, especially the the branch of Anglicanism with a higher Christology that he was influenced by. Uh, I mean, it, it was very, uh, had believed that it was in some sense identical to the Catholic church. It had tried to reform the Catholic church, but there hadn't been any complete apostasy and that, uh, thus you could go back through the, the, tw- the 14th, the 12th, the 10th centuries and find heroes and miracles and all the rest of it. And so that you could go back and and look at it as a, uh, a a great march through history by the one Christian church of which the Anglican uh, communion is uh, a portion. And uh, he that's how why he was able to do that. And, of course, that got me, that gave me at least a curiosity about Lewis's Anglican Christianity. And, you know, you're only a few steps away from the uh, mm-hmm. from the full, full Megillah at that point. So uh, uh, Chesterton... Uh, uh, a big moment in my journey was uh, when I read Chesterton was asked uh, what book had influenced him the most in his conversion. And he said, The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. I said, man, I got to get that. That sounds fantastic. And this most impressive book to C.S. Lewis, the single most important cause. 
And then I found out G.K. Chesterton was a Roman Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) So to be told all of a sudden that uh, Lewis wouldn't even have been a Christian if it hadn't been for this Catholic guy, that was uh, difficult to process. (laughs) So, So scary, scary. As a matter of fact, I had bought a copy of the book before I found out that he was Catholic. And when I found out, I got scared, and I I didn't throw the book away, but I like put it at the bottom of the drawer and covered it up, covered it up with some shirts and stuff, you know, and because I had thought that I had compromised myself, you know. Interesting that I didn't throw it away, but I did hide it. So, and it, it did. It scared me like a like a snake having a snake in your house. So you obviously you're coming from a place of deep grounding in the Bible, and it sounds like you were. Uh, you are genuinely, enthusiastically uh, Christian. You are not some somebody who is just kind of half a light for your faith, but it sounds like you are somebody who is on fire, who dug into the Bible, who knew your stuff. And well, this... I won't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, no, so you were a half not... you were a half baked Christian who, depending on who you compare me to, I know a few things. <laughs> But you were confronted, and I can relate to this idea because, you know, we even had a church history Sunday school class at my church when I was in high school and up into university. But in that church history class, in quotations, like you've mentioned, didn't teach anything before the Reformation. And even if it was that far back, it would just be kind of a little bit murky, but certainly further back than that, there just nothing kind of happened, right? Right. So we can be schooled in the Bible, but not really know the the history of the of the Bible or the history of our faith. Right. It's almost as and, if, and that demands an explanation. In other words, why don't we get taught about those eleven centuries or how many it is? There, everybody, every evangelical may be vaguely aware that we don't hold with those uh, Catholics that we hear about from time to time from that period, St. Gregory the Great, people like that. That's somebody else's thing, you know. That comes from the period when that we don't like, okay? So, but at the same time, you, if you're aware that, that things were wrong, you've, you've created in your mind a little apostasy theory. You've got, a, uh, you've got it one whether you realize it or not, you know. If you know that it's not good to read about these guys, you've got an apostasy theory, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, uh, once you become aware that you're doing it, which is what C.S. Lewis's quote about the army with banners did for me, I became aware in a way that I wasn't before that uh, uh, that here was this attractive idea, the idea that the church had been marching along with saints and sinners, admittedly, but saints and uh, heroes and miracles all through the ages, ever since the apostles passed from the scene, and there have been great uh, experiences and adventures and dramas along the way. Once you become inoculated with that idea, you're going to become more and more aware of how strange it is, how strange the apostasy theory is, uh, especially from people that... Now, you're used to hearing it from doctrinaire people. I mean, amongst evangelicals, there's a little subset of people who are actively angry at Catholicism for some reason, many of them former Catholics. And... uh, uh, they, you know, they're a little more, they're the people that are willing to, to tell you that the Pope is the Antichrist and all that, all that stuff. But that was always considered a kind of a sideshow 
in the, in my version of evangelicalism anyway. You know, we, uh, we, we didn't, that was a little bit distasteful. We didn't want to get, don't jump into that with two feet either. <laughs> so what happened when you went back then and began to read from these sources that took place before the Reformation? So these early church fathers, maybe some writers you hadn't really heard about. Because for me as well, when I was given my Bible or bought my first Bible when I became a Christian in high school, I this was all there was. There was nothing before the Bible, nothing after the Bible. Certainly nothing. So you you did uh, you did uh, have experience as you know a, a heathen before you actually were converted <laughs> to any form of Christianity, right? I did, I did. It was in high school when I became okay. a Christian. Yeah, that's uh, a different way to approach it. Absolutely, and it's so interesting. Yeah, and so I I became a Christian in high school, evangelical. I got my Bible, and I had no idea for a long time. I think maybe like you that. There was writing that happened after the Bible by people who were taught by the apostles in the Bible. You know, we just took this Bible as here was the Bible and nothing happened between the writing well, of the New Testament and and me in Well, that was another that was another horrifying moment in my journey when I uh one day, you know, trying to figure it all out, getting increasingly confused and frustrated to begin with. Uh, I suddenly realized, I formulated it in my mind for the first time, uh, uh, something I would never have dared to allow myself to think up to this point. But I said to myself, you know, the evangelical scheme of salvation is basically this. Jesus left a Bible behind. Everybody is supposed to read it and try to figure it out. If you figure it out right, you go to heaven. If you figure it out wrong, you go to hell. And there you go. <laughs> and I, I said, that really is what I have always believed, even though I've never been frank like that. But basically, the Bible is a character test. You, you read it, and your response to it uh, is what decides uh, whether you pass the test or not you know? <laughs> but it's like the this this idea of that jesus tossed his message overboard like a like a ship like a message in a bottle like robinson crusoe or somebody on an island and he tossed the message out in a bottle and everybody is individually supposed to find it disconnected from any current body of believers any any uh, uh church any organization, you open it up, you read it on your own, you try to figure it out, and if you figure it out right, that shows that God was moving it with you, working with you. And uh, if you figure out wrong, it out wrong, well, <laughs> there you go. You're one of the, the bad ones, <laughs> the bad guys, heretics. Yeah. And, of course, figuring it out, deciding if you figured it out right or wrong is also a little bit of a subjective test, isn't it? Well, it's left up to you. Which, of course, is the fox guard in the hen house, <laughs> as we would say up here in the mountain. So when you realize that there was, uh, there, if, if, you're, if there was no apostasy, there must have been an authority that continued on after the Bible was put together. Did yeah, you... and, it, and who, who is really under any illusions about who that authority might be? Which, which church claims to have been under the same management since day one? <laughs> Not in some spiritual sense, in the sense of Jesus has always been here in our hearts or whatever, but under the same management. We're the church that claims that we've got a list of our CEOs 
and it goes, it's a historical list that can be investigated and you can go all the way back to the beginning with it. Uh, whether that's true or not, nobody else even claims that. Everybody else is always the descendant of some group that protested. And, uh, uh, the, you know, the result is you've got two different kinds of church. The, the ones that claim an apostasy theory and the ones, the one that doesn't. So there you go. But yes, finding the next big moment was finding, uh, and I don't know that I actually sought this out, uh, a little bit like hiding everlasting man. I was a little bit scared to go dig into it. I may have had what you were talking about a, a little while ago, the idea that, you know, who, uh, you know, what can there possibly be left over from the early church? I had the idea that many people have that, uh, that there's a big gap between the time that the, uh, apostles finish the new testament and then when later stuff comes in later later history you know that there's a hundred years or something of of uh dark time when when you know you can you can decide for yourself what new testament christianity looked like because there's no record so it's a it's a it's a ink blot test you can you can interpret it the way you like so i probably had no idea that so much existed but anyway one day i just happened to cross in a, in a protestant bookshop I happened to cross a big set of volumes uh, called the Anti-Nicene Fathers, big big bound uh, books put together in probably the late 19th century, uh, dense, small print, not very attractive to your average person, but I've always been a bit of a bookworm, you know. But I picked up the first volume of this set, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Anti-Nicene meaning before the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325. Uh, I picked up the first volume of this set, and it was this thick, heavy book and uh, with, with double columns of small text. And I quickly found out that there wasn't a word in it that had been written later than the year 200 A.D. And then I also found that there were multiple volumes in the same set, equally full of thousands of words of small print that all dated from uh, the next hundred years or so. So the period before this Council of Nicaea, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, thousands of pages of documentation about what the early church was like before it was legalized. Now, that <laughs> just the existence of that was something I had never really dreamed of. I thought there might be a few archaeological relics, you know. But the the fact that you can go and read for days <laughs> documentation by eyewitnesses, people who in many cases had been uh, had known the apostles. Clement of Rome uh left us a letter from the year 90 AD, so the apostle John is probably still living. And he he leaves us this long letter from about 90 A.D. Clement of Rome is somebody who knew the apostles. There's an old uh, tradition that he was baptized by Peter himself. He's mentioned in the Bible. So, you know, and then Ignatius of Antioch was a uh, uh, new saint, new John the Apostle, and new Polycarp, another name that many people have heard. One of the few names that people may have heard from this early period. You can read Polycarp's writings. You can read the hundreds of pages of Irenaeus, who was another disciple of Polycarp. Uh, theological stuff 
lot of it touching hot-button issues that are a great source of division amongst churches today. These guys were all agreed on, and they all tell you what the early church thought about it, uh, you know, just a few decades after uh, after the apostles uh, went on to their reward. So that was the next big step, was finding out, you know, okay, gee, it must be must not be any way to know what the early church was like since everybody disagrees about it as to which apostasy theory is correct. Uh, well, surprise, there's hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentation on that subject. You're welcome to go look at them anytime you want to. <laughs> and I don't mean to to date you uh, respectfully, uh, <laughs> Rod. So, so what you're I, saying is I might be an old archaeological <laughs> relic too. Is that what you're getting at? What I'm saying is that I bought the whole anti-Nicene uh, collection for two dollars as an ebook. <laughs> <laughs> so it weighs nothing yeah, in it, yeah, hey, yeah. but it's still thousands of pages long, and the print is yeah. still very very small. Well, I must say there was something impressive about those big heavy library books i mean they, and they were ducked away significantly they were tucked away on the back shelf of an unusually uh, uh brainy evangelical bookshop <laughs> the, uh, the kind that caters a bit more to theological nerds than a lot of them do and uh but it was st- still stuck away in the back corner as if boy you really have to be weird to want to look at this but it was again published by a protestant publisher so uh uh that was what gave me permission to read it was uh, that it was a Protestant publisher had published it. In fact, some of the notes are uh, from an evangelical perspective in those early volumes. So, yeah, I think that's interesting to, in- to encounter that, right? Cause my impression, and I think your impression too, is the Bible was, was written. It was, put, it was put together and, and, you know, I, I think this is maybe illustrative for me was that when I would ask questions about the early church, and we had these Sunday school classes, these adult education classes on a Sunday morning where we'd talk about the early church and, and quote-unquote church history, but the picture we got of the early church was, was were these apostles meeting in the upper room, meeting in people's houses, kind of in hiding, practicing their faith. We got that from the Acts of the Apostles, of course. But what we didn't talk about, which is also in the Acts of the Apostles, are these church councils, the Council of Jerusalem, right? Right. Where the apostles are are authoritatively exercising what Jesus gave them. Right. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Yeah. And then we have, I think you would have found this too, that then the church fathers, you know, Polycarp, Ignatius, uh, Irenaeus, these early church fathers who followed the apostles— are then exercising that same authority, right? Writing very similar sounding letters to churches in the same places that we have Paul writing his epistles to. Right, and consciously expressing the idea that they've received their office from the apostles. So there wasn't... By, by the laying on of hands, as we see Paul doing with Timothy in the, uh, in the New Testament. Right, I, that was remarkable for me to discover that, okay, so there couldn't have been... Uh, an immediate apostasy when once the Paul wrote his letters, right? There must have been some kind of continuing authority. So this authority may be extended a little bit further until the time the Bible was collected. How how does that work? Oh well, that uh, uh, yeah. Without getting into the the you know the issue of whether apostolic succession is real or not. In other words, this is the the church's contention that this was God's plan from the beginning was that the apostles would would lay hands on uh, handpicked men as we, again as we see Paul doing with Timothy, 
and imparting a gift, as as Paul says that he's doing with that he did with Timothy, um, and that this gift is the gift uh, of apostleship to be the bishops of the uh, churches once the apostles were gone. And uh, whether you accept that that's real or not, that there is a real teaching authority in the church that comes with God's stamp of approval. Um, the fact is that all of the er- all the records of the early church are from people who believe it. That's I mean, whether you believe in apost- apostolic succession or not, you have to concede that the early church did believe in it. Similarly, with baptism, for example, uh, modern ev- I tell modern evangelicals many times when I talk with them, they they say, "Well, you know, I've got this different idea about baptism." I say, "Well, fine, fine, you do, but." The early church is astonishingly unified about the nature of baptism, that it's rebirth, that it's regeneration from sin, that it's uh, that a person becomes a Christian at at baptism sacramentally by a sacramental act uh, passed down from from Jesus and the apostles. And uh, you, you may not believe that's true, but you have to account for the fact that the whole early church did believe it. And you might think, well, there, some people will resort to the idea, well, there were other people who didn't believe it that way, but the records have been scrubbed. You know, the people in charge burned up all of the contrary documents. And uh, once again, we're in conspiracy land, you know. Maybe <laughs> uh, uh, maybe the Illuminati did it at this point. <laughs> UFOs, et cetera. You know, I mean, you've fallen off into conspiracy. And if you can't account for church history without resorting to these kinds of conspiracy theories, you need to ask yourself questions about that. Why is my, why does my version of church history have no uh, documentation? Where, where, where are the first and second century evangelicals? Where are their writings? You have to conclude either two things: somebody deliberately burned them, for which there's no evidence, no record at all of such a thing. Uh, all of the other great heresies of that era have left copious documentation. In other words, if there, if first century evangelicals were persecuted and their writings were burned, well, why didn't this happen to Nestorians and Montanists and uh, uh, and uh, Marcionites and uh, and Monophysites and Arians and all the rest of the, these groups? All of their all of their writings are very easy to trace, and you find the early uh, fathers uh, refuting them and and arguing against them. But if there was any first century evangelicalism, it's left no trace at all, which is a good good reason to think that there wasn't any. And uh, the more sober writers on this topic uh, uh, try to avoid resorting to conspiracy theory. But if you're going to do that, you've got to account somehow for the fact that your church teaches something different than 200 years of the early fathers taught. Uh, we're not treating the early fathers as uh, authorities. In other words, it's not a third testament, but uh, if they went astray, how come they all went astray in the same direction? Hmm. That's not what happens when churches go astray today. <laughs> <laughs> all of the uh, the early fathers may have gone astray. If so, they've gone astray into a unity of faith. They've all gone astray into saying the same thing. So uh, that's something to account for. So what about the idea then that, okay, so the early church got it right and the, those first, the Antinicene fathers got it right, but then along comes Rome and along comes Constantine and this faith that was this uh, 
non-aggressive, kind, gentle, taking care of the poor, hiding in the upper room, this this very kind of uh, folky kind of faith was suddenly was suddenly politicized and was suddenly militarized and was suddenly this is where the apostasy happened the the real church that was there that was as kinder gentler christ-centered church was somehow corrupted by this this apostasy this roman apostasy this by by having been having converted the romans is the apostasy right sure Right. That's, uh, it's interesting. We ought to look for a second, first of all, of why they always pick Constantine. There's no evidence for any of these things. The more closely you look at Constantine's story, the more obvious it becomes to you that he didn't have anything to do with the content of the faith at all. He was one of the least theological or philosophical people that ever lived. He was a soldier, never able to interest himself in any abstract subjects of any kind, and he made no effort to change the church's doctrine at any time during his life. The uh, uh, you you find him uh, abjectly submitting to the uh, bishops of the existing Christian Church at the Council of Nicaea, and uh, I'd be very interested to see uh, uh, any attempt as as somebody who's read the original source materials. I can tell you, all of that stuff is right out of Dan Brown, even though it it predates Dan Brown. There 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 was no apostasy at that time. But one of the best cures to the idea that some sort of great apostasy happened with Constantine is to read these anti-Nicene fathers. In other words, if you think you've got to be more specific about what you think Constantine did. Did Constantine force Christians to believe in the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper? Well, if so, how come they've been talking about it for 275 years at that point? More, 325. Um. In other words, the more you know about the writings of the anti-Nicene fathers, the more you realize that many of the things that you blame Constantine for were there long before Constantine ever came along. In fact, almost all of the Catholicism that that people think that uh, Constantine's responsible for is already present before uh, Constantine comes along. Strongly encourage people to read uh, the writings of the anti-Nicene fathers you'll find that the church was Catholic long before Constantine was ever born. And if so, what is it you blame Constantine for? But, Rod, the print is so small, and those books are so big. <laughs> right, I agree, I agree with you. <laughs> that <laughs> well, just takes too much work. Well, it, mo- most people would do it if they felt that they weren't being deceived somehow. But I, uh, many, one of the things that political the political conflicts between Catholic and Protestant sowed for us back in the uh, 16th, 17th centuries was to hate, feel hatred and suspicion towards each other. So we, we can't, most evangelicals don't look into Catholicism, not because they think it's wrong, but because they're afraid of it. The way I was with of everlasting man, it's pretty weird that you feel like you have to stick a book in a drawer and cover it up with shirts. You know, that's weird. It's not just that you disagree with it or don't believe in it or, st- or something. You actually are the victim of many centuries of, pro- of propaganda about these people will deceive you. These people are tricksy, and you need to keep away from them. And uh, that, I think, is one of the things. Most print is small, and the book is heavy. Uh, I think that's what keeps people away. They feel like that, they're, that somebody's trying to trick them. <laughs> and again, that's that's political propaganda. 
is responsible for that. Yeah, I had Ken Hensley on a, on a couple episodes ago, and he talked about the idea that, well, the reason why uh, an evangelical, and this was, he was talking about, I think, he was talking about his own situation, his own experiences. The reason why you you kind of shy away from looking at, well, who put the Bible together is simply because you don't trust the Catholic Church. You're almost as if right. what you're saying, you're scared of that thing, right? Not really a rational reason to not look into. Right. I think the, this, this apostasy idea comes from the same place. Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely not. People don't look at the Catholic, like, for, for example, my friends, I kept all of my wonderful evangelical friends all through my process, and my process involved sojourns at several different places. Uh, you know, I spent a few years amongst a, uh, a an evangelical church that had kind of a, a, I guess, high Methodism might be a good way to describe <laughs> it, uh, a kind of a, a Wesleyan uh, interest in uh, uh, books like The Imitation of Christ and uh, uh, things like that, that 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 comes down to us from Wesley. And then I eventually wound up in a kind of a low church, Episcopalian church, and a uh, eventually a high church Episcopalian church, a church that, in fact, my my son was baptized in a Protestant church with a statue of the Virgin Mary in the back of it. So uh, uh, that that should give you some idea. But uh, uh, but the, the interesting thing is, all along in this process, everybody was fine. Rod, what church are you going to? I'm going to Church of Our Savior, uh, an Episcopalian church. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds interesting. We should talk sometime, okay? And then, but then when you when you convert, when you tell them you've joined the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, all of a sudden it gets really quiet and weird. You know, it's uh, uh, I sometimes think this is one of the reasons why conversions to high anglicanism or eastern orthodoxy are easier for evangelicals it's uh it's kind of like the uh kind of like the uh mayor in jaws you know he says you holler barracuda and everybody goes huh what but you holler shark you got a big panic on your hands you know <laughs> and uh that's what it was like for me in the catholic church the uh and all of my uh journeys were interesting to people before it got real serious <laughs> but yes people have a weird uh uh the catholic church is the shark and and eastern orthodoxy or whatever have you is the barracuda so <laughs> yeah. So tell so tell me this then if there wasn't an apostasy what would you say to somebody to, to convince somebody in in so many words I mean you you've written a book about this so what would you say to convince somebody that there wasn't an apostasy Well uh, as you as you say I put I gave that my best shot in uh, the great in the apostasy that wasn't which is my book about uh, about the age of Constantine so yeah, I, it's not a commercial, but I if you're if you're really interested, that's the book you should read. Uh, that's my one-stop shopping source for uh, refuting apostasy theories, especially since the one about Constantine is the one that's that's so common, and pe- so many people have uh, have uh, bought into without thinking about it very, very much. Uh, you know, it's amazing the degree to which most of the facts about what people believe about Constantine. And that period of time are just simply not true. They don't require a lot of argumentation. They're just untrue on the face of them. Constantine made Christianity the official church of the Roman Empire. Not true. 
didn't happen until Constantine had been dead for years. Uh, what else? Uh, Constantine uh, 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 created a Bible that included the, that that had the Christian contents. It was Constantine who invented the Christian Bible. You hear this not so much amongst evangelicals, but other types of Christians, uh, uh, liberal Christians and stuff. Not true. The uh, uh, we've got the uh, uh, we've got records of a, a Christian New Testament, virtually identical to ours. Uh, that were a hundred years older than Constantine's time, M more than that, I think. The uh, uh, famous Muratorian uh, fragment, I think, dates from about one, one eighty or something. But anyway, uh, you just go right down the line, uh, but, and so many of them are just very obvious, like this idea that you that you put forward that Christians were cowering in caves before Constantine legalized the faith, and then they all came out into the sunshine. And before that, we'd had this wonderful kind of kumbaya version of Christianity where we all met in homes. There was no organization, no liturgy, no people in charge. Everything just ran along on goodwill, you know. And uh, But you go and look at the, at the records of the 200, again, reading the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Uh, most of the writers from that period uh, don't, thought things were terrible in the mid-second, the mid-third century. Like Origen wrote, writing about 250, talked about how uh, so much immorality there was amongst both laity and uh, clergy, uh, about you know how many bad uh, practices had crept in, use, uh, evoking usury, churches acting as loan sharks for the faithful. And I think Origen just says straight out the church was whoring in the year 250. <laughs> <laughs> so the church was, and, uh, was bad, but it wasn't yeah. it wasn't it wasn't apostatized. There's a, an important well, difference there, right? Well, if if you mean that they still taught the same stuff after Constantine that they did before, uh that's right, they did. Catholicism is present in in the in 250 AD and in 350 AD, and Constantine affected the teachings of the church in in no way at all. The uh, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the churches there are there were basilicas, large Christian basilicas, uh, in public, big big cathedral type churches standing around in public all through the late two hundreds A.D. fifty seventy years before Constantine, Christianity was technically still uh, on the ban list. But uh, it was very much out in the open, and everybody knew that it was this rising movement, and no attempt at persecution was being made all through that late 3rd century A.D. So all kinds of things you encounter like this that uh, make you realize that the pop version of it uh, is uh, needs a second look, to say the <laughs> least, to say the least. So I encourage you, if that's intriguing to you, I encourage you to uh, read the apostasy that wasn't. Well, I hope that everyone does. I it's a fantastic book, and it sounds like to me that the the key then to undoing this apostasy uh, conspiracy theory, as you call it, I think that's aptly put, is looking at the the history, right? It's just yeah. a, it seems like a pretty simple matter of actually digging into that history, right? Sure. Well, that that's the thing is uh, uh, really the answer to what Constantine did or didn't do is to go back and read the early fathers from the previous two centuries, three centuries. Because it, it, depending on what you blame Constantine for, 
you will very quickly find that it was being believed by the Christian church 100, 200 years or more before Constantine, and you can find the record of it right there in black and white. So uh, uh, the, the Constantine thing kind of dries up and blows away, If the, be the better you know what the church was like in the centuries prior to Constantine. Right. What about the idea that that Martin Luther and the reformers then restored that true church? Then what about what about that conspiracy theory? Well, again, as we said, uh, it's a, you can get a surprising uh, uh, unanimity on who the villain of the piece is. Constantine usually gets tagged with it uh, for for whatever reason. Again, the legalization of Christianity, which he was responsible for. Uh, that's a watershed, no doubt. I mean, it is true that a watershed was passed as the Roman church began to be conquered by Christianity, which is what actually happened. Uh, it's a watershed. So things, things, many things do change, not beliefs or, uh, or the uh, practices of the church, but many, many things happen, relate difference in the way Christians relate to their government, the country they live in, all the rest of it does change. But, uh, uh, but the interesting thing is you just watch uh, uh, that as it plays out and you uh, realize that it's some sort of watershed. So everybody can kind of say, Constantine, I've heard he's the bad guy, so let's go with that. Um, but the funny thing is when you realize that everybody, disagree, everybody agrees to disagree, everybody's got a different idea of who the prophet is that brought everything back. Not many people... Uh, uh, most evangelicals, at least the kind I was around, didn't have much room for Luther either. You know, we, did, we didn't read Luther. I mean, we were glad that he had once struck a blow against the Pope, you know. <laughs> I mean, any stick's good enough to beat the Pope with, you know. And, uh, but we, uh, we didn't have in a practical way much. I mean, we didn't think if we visited Lutheran churches, which was really rare, <laughs> we, we, uh, uh, we were mostly horrified by how Romish they still were, you know? <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I remember that happening to me when I went to a Methodist church for crying out loud, visited a Methodist church and, and, uh, shocked by the, uh, Romish leftovers yeah. souvenirs. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so in practical, most of us felt like that we had our own guy, you know, everybody's got a guy <laughs> and, uh, we, uh, Luther wasn't really our guy, but he was somebody that we admired. He started the process. This is what most of us would, would have said is that, you know, he, he started things. He, he stood up and thumbed his nose at the Pope. So, uh, and that started the ball rolling, but it was only, you know, when our group got started good that, uh, that things really, really started straightening out right so he may have helped to shake the uh barnacles off the ship but some some of them some of them he kept of them. <laughs> he left too many on there right sure well he both still believed in the real presence of christ in a very i mean he he wanted to quibble he, he came up with consubstantiation but essentially he believed the same thing in in its essence he did not believe that the uh that the uh the sacrament of the altar is just symbolic and that nothing happens and that no miracle takes place. And so, uh, that was something that we thought, well, goodness. Well, then we thought, you know, everybody calls him a great genius, but, uh, you know, all he needed to do is read his Bible to see that's not in the Bible. <laughs> well, Luther thought it was. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, but, uh, yeah, we didn't have much use for Luther. If you, uh, I mean, he, he also, uh, baptized babies, which my group was, Big big against. 
<laughs> so that was a kind of evangelicalism, and I, I, I can relate to this, that didn't even really find its roots in the Reformation then. No, no, we, we had as much trouble with the Reformation as we did with any, any of the rest of them, really. I mean, at least they weren't Catholic, but that's about all we were willing to concede. I remember reading Dr. Francis Schaeffer was a, was a big, important evangelical thinker, you know, in the 1980s. And uh, uh, he was somebody that I greatly admired and still do. Um, and he used to want to talk about the reformers. He wanted to tell you about Farrell and, and, and Zwingli and, uh, and Luther and the rest. And we all, we all felt like, gee, that's cool. It's nice that there's history. You know, it'd be cool to go visit some shrine associated with some great hero, you know. But, you know, if you actually started reading those guys, you, you didn't like much of what you heard from them either, you know. It, it wasn't very much like what we said. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so you've expressed that you did have some uh, exposure to the, the church fathers, uh, Augustine or, or whomever. But, and I was in the same boat I think, in the sense that we'd read Athanasius. It was just his feast day recently, right? We'd read Athanasius on the Incarnation, um, but we wouldn't well, read you, anything else by him. We wouldn't, we, we, you know, so we, we're, we're, we're picking. We're the if, same way if we you read that. If you read that, you were way ahead of me. <laughs> we, uh, I, Like I say, I had heard that some Christians were willing to concede. Well, Augustine got a pass because apparently the— uh, the Lutheran Calvin thought that they had gotten parts of their system from him. So he got a pass as kind of a proto proto Calvinist. So I think that's the reason we were allowed to like him and Augustine liked, liked uh, Anselm. So we were allowed to, to sort of give him a little bit of a leeway, a little bit of leeway, but no, your group, if you read Athanasius with, with uh, approval, you were ahead of us. So we, <laughs> But you're still cherry-picking these sources, right? Because if you read anything else by uh, Augustine, or I think you mentioned uh, St. Francis earlier, or if I had read much more by uh, Athanasius, you you encounter very Catholic theology and very Catholic thinking, right? Yeah, I've had many Protestant ministers tell me that uh, they, they read, they did a semester on the Church Fathers, in seminary and uh but it involved textbooks with individual quotes they had uh, cherry-picked quotes as you say that they approved of and uh there were there was some wording to the effect that they you know had not gotten you know there were some ideas in there that gradually evolved into uh gradually were distorted into roman catholicism later on you know certain elements of their thought uh, uh were over time evolved into streams within Catholicism. So they did pay uh, lip service to the idea that these guys had had uh, problematic uh, areas in their writing, which is why we don't give you much of it. But we will show you that uh, uh, these people said nice things about Jesus and stuff back then. <laughs> but it uh, sounds like to me, what what you're saying is the antidote to believing there is an apostasy to subscribing to this conspiracy theory is simply to do things like read the fathers and look into church history, right? Right. If you have a conspiracy theory, it's uh, it's incumbent upon you to find out whether there's anything in it or not. 
And, uh, you know, you can take this episode as a, as an encouragement to, to not just swallow it hook, line, and sinker, especially since your conspiracy is different than all the other evangelicals out there. Nobody has exactly the same one, you know. Certainly I didn't have exactly the same mix that uh, my friends and neighbors had. So that being the case, uh, you know, you need it, and also given the fact that this is so important, I mean, believing that the early, that the church failed and had to be restored at some point is such a crazy idea that uh, you, you, if you, if that's what you think and that's what you're basing your system on, you, uh, uh, you ought to take some effort to, to resolve it, find out about it. And the best way to do it is go back and read these early fathers, read, read that, uh, don't just read excerpts, read what they actually taught. And you're going to, the most striking thing you're going to see, it's not, um, it's not going to be shocking to you to find that there are a lot of things that sound evangelical. That's great. You're going to be glad to find that. You're also going to find, and I think we've prepared you for this idea, you're going to find alarming things, confessions to a priest and, uh, uh, and you know, obedience to the Bishop of Rome uh, and apostolic succession and real presence of Christ and baptismal regeneration and all these other things. You're going to find those in there, too, if you read the whole thing, the whole package. But what you really want to look for is the unity between these fathers. Again, if they went astray, they went astray into a unity of faith. And that's something to reckon with. The fact that there is such tremendous uh, doctrinal um, concurrence, they're essentially teaching the same system and they agree with each other. Uh, you're going to find that uh, stands up in the middle of what they're doing very clearly. There's not a wide variety of opinion uh, on these things. They're, they're agreed on the things that we mentioned. So uh, that's what you have to account for. Not just that Catholic ideas existed back then, but that Catholic ideas were the consensus. You know, It does require a little bit of... Here, here's here's a, something that was really striking to me, and this might help. I used to believe that uh, the glorification of Mary happened in the Middle Ages, that these were later accretions, uh, you know, all the teachings about the uh, uh, perpetual virginity of Mary and the idea that, uh, uh, that Mary, uh, you know, was all, all the things that Catholics used to glorify Mary. I said, I, I believed, well, that was a, uh, uh, that was a later addition. In the Middle Ages, things went crazy and uh, went wild and folk piety piled one legend on top of another until you have these elaborate stories about Mary. Um, somebody directed me to a document called the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, which is a purports to tell the story of Mary's childhood with her parents and what her life was like as a child and how she came to be the uh, uh, mother of the Savior. It gives her backstory. Now, uh, it may or may not be true. You know, nobody, the church does not insist that the Proto-Evangelium of St. James is historically true. Okay, it may or may, it may be or it may not. No real reason to doubt it, but it may not be. Okay, one of the things you find in there, interestingly enough, the perpetual virginity of Mary. In other words, she didn't have uh, any other children besides our Lord. 
and that uh, her husband, in this story, her husband is uh, an older man who was put into uh, put in charge of Mary because she had taken vows of virginity when she did temple service as a child, as a young girl. And so, in this book, has all the things that we attributed to uh, all those things we didn't like about the glorification of Mary. Uh, but then you think, well, okay, well, what's surprising about this? A Catholic book has all that Catholic stuff about Mary. Well, the Proto-Evangelium of St. James dates from about 170 A.D., and that's a conservative number, okay? In other words, it that's 170-something years before Constantine, and it's one of the earliest Christian books, period, okay? So without stressing that it's historical truth, uh, what can we say that that book accomplishes? Well, it absolutely, beyond any controversy, explodes the idea that these ideas are late developments in Marian theology. The book may not be historically accurate. Mary may not have been a perpetual virgin. That's a different discussion. But those ideas certainly did not arise late as legends in the Middle Ages because they're in this book that came from 170 years after the birth of Christ. So uh, that's startling, and you'll find things all kinds of things like that if you read these anti-Nicene fathers. <laughs> That's just a fantastic illustration you provided yeah. there. Well, I think so, too. <laughs> so I, here's, for me, then, the foundational question. If there was no apostasy, what does that mean for our faith? Yeah, that's that's a tremendous question. That's really an important question. If What it really means at bottom is that uh, Jesus did put somebody in charge when he left. He does have a vicar on earth. I'm not really uh, 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 emphasizing the papacy right now at this time. And I think to some degree it can be over overemphasized in the Christian scheme. But, but by saying a vicar, a vicar is a pinch hitter in baseball terms. He's somebody who stands in while the guy who's supposed to be in this spot uh, is is away, okay? Now, uh, you know, and that's an interesting idea. It doesn't imply divinity on the part of the Pope. But it does imply that Jesus took steps. Jesus created a real organization with a real constitution, and that exists, organization still exists today and has not apostatized. If that's the case, that's the most important claim in Christianity because what it gives you then is an authorized teacher. It gives you an answer to the question, who's to say? One of the main things that keeps Christianity from being the witness it should be in our world is there's no question, no answer to the question in most people's minds of who's to say. Your average person drives down the uh, highway to work five miles back and forth each day, and they pass ten different churches all on the same strip, and they're all next door to each other, but they don't talk, and all of them preaches a different version of it. Everybody knows this. All of our fellow Americans know this very well. And what they conclude from it is, well, it's all just human opinion. And who could argue with that? Well, this is the answer. The idea that Jesus left a real church, and he left people in charge of it, and that they are the authorized teachers. Whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me and rejects him who sent me. That's a really, really important idea, and it's the answer to e almost everything 
that's wrong with uh, Christianity theologically today. Not, not wrong with our moral response to Christianity. We have as much trouble with that as the, as the non-Christian does many times. So nobody's claiming that our church is superior in that way, that we turn out a better class of people. I've known great saints in every church I've ever been. Thank God. But we do have an answer to that question, who's to say, and it makes sense. <laughs> well, Ron, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're doing, what you're up to, what you've written, and, and that sort of thing? Well, I'm kind of in the process of redoing my author website, so I wouldn't necessarily send people to there right now. Uh, I, maybe just uh, send, if you're on the dreaded Facebook, send me a friend request. I'm on Facebook. I don't, I'm not famous enough to have to claim to be the real Rod Bennett, even though I am. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody at one of these book events where they had me to talk about my book said, oh, you're famous. I said, oh, boy. So if that's your idea of fame. I told him, I told him, believe me, I am a me medium sized fish in a really tiny little pond. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's my idea of fame. So, well, uh, Hey, uh, I think you're but, pretty all right. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I need all the affirmation I can get. Yeah. Well, the book, but yeah, send, send me a Facebook request and, uh, go on. If you get your books from Amazon, if you don't have moral objections to Amazon, which I won't go into one way or the other. But uh, uh, if you're into Amazon, go on my author page on Amazon. It'll give you, I think, all seven of my books are still, not seven yet. They're just six right now. There's one that's at the publisher now, and it'll be, be out later this year. So, But, uh, but you, can, you can find my books there. Well, that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's really been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. It's been fun. I, I didn't get to hear enough of your story. I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear more of your story. Maybe you'll have me back sometime. Well, I'd be glad to. Thank you very right. much, Rod. Thanks so much. Been fun. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I enjoyed having the interview. It was really a riot talking to Rod, and I hope that came through in our conversation. Please make sure you like and subscribe to this podcast, especially on Apple Music. I would love some reviews. Any reviews, any ratings help push the show out and get more exposure. Make sure you subscribe to it as well in Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play Music, Tuned In, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Those subscriptions really help keep the show going because new people find it if you subscribe and it pushes up the ratings and uh, the rankings and that kind of thing. Visit thecordialcatholic.com for show notes for my blog. Make sure you like The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. Make sure you tweet at me if you have Twitter at Cordial Catholic and send any feedback, any emails, anything you'd like to to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. 
This show is 100% listener supported and I appreciate those who've already decided to help out on Patreon at patreon.com slash cordial catholic. It really helps to have some sponsorship and to have people helping to pay the bills and keep this podcast running and I am so grateful for all of that support. Thank you so much. We'll talk again next week and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.